0: Hello and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security, this time episode 30. Can you believe we're up to 30, Chow? I mean, that's amazing.
1: Well, that's amazing, and it's a very long time. With everything that's been happening, it doesn't feel that long, but wow, well, 30
0: yeah there's no shortage of topics here i remember we can you believe this we started like every other week um, yeah because because you know that's what it was but it, there's just so much to talk about that i don't think it's really sustainable with just talking every other week unless every other week is a two or three hour episode or something but anyway we actually should
1: check it should be closer mm-hmm. about now that we're celebrating the the first anniversary of the podcast
0: you know i should check that out actually um i forgot when we started this it just kind of seems yeah. like we've always had it but you know it, everything has a beginning at some point so um that's a good good point it, it's probably hopefully it hasn't passed
1: yeah hopefully it hasn't passed um i know the cake is alive but still we should deserve cake for, <laughs> we should get some cake to celebrate the the first
0: anniversary any cake or any excuse <laughs> for cake is a is a good thing um yeah. so in today's episode, I wanted to kind of um, do another foundational episode, but this one is going to be focused on tools that we can use. And I'm not going to say over and over again every time I mention a tool that it's not going to make you 100% safe. Um obviously we've said that enough and and if you've heard previous episodes you already know that if this is the first episode you're jumping into and well now you know that no one tool is going to do that for you but it's a great idea to have uh you know at least uh some tools that you can use that that we use or that we've recommended Um, Also, obviously, we're not going to give you every single tool you can use. This isn't an extensive list. It's in semi-random, but we could do another episode and talk more about this. That doesn't mean this is the only one. Um, And the other disclaimer I'm going to give everyone before we start is, you know, even though we're giving you a list of tools, exercise caution before you use any of them. Make sure you have permission to use them, because if you're not the person that manages the network or you're level of management in your company isn't high enough, you could get in trouble by running some tools because whoever is monitoring the network, if that's not you, or if someone also monitors it, they they could see the traffic as um, an intrusion attempt in and of itself. So just exercise caution. We're not responsible if you blow your servers up or if you get fired, if you don't let somebody know, just let somebody know ahead of time that you want to try these tools before you do. Um, But anyway, the point here is we have um, a list, there's a list of things and these are things in a more general sense that'll either help you prevent problems, recover from problems, um, scan for problems and, and things of that nature.
1: Yeah. And again, it's a list of things that will make your life a bit easier if you're into this side of the, the business. Yep. Um, not the end all be all of all the lists. <laughs> Anybody can find fault in any list that we, would, that we could create. So. The the internet being what the internet is, we know that uh, you'll complain that uh, we're either missing tools so and so, or that we shouldn't have included the tool so and so. But yeah, it it comes with the with the podcast.
0: When it comes to content creation in general, that's how it goes, right? Um, But we try. The thing is, we try our best, and ultimately, uh, the way I look at it. Um, is it possible that someone knows a much better tool that should have been on this list? Well, absolutely. Let us know because yeah. that could actually inspire us to do an episode about it. So maybe that's a great thing if someone finds something we haven't covered because there's no end to this podcast. I I really don't see an end here because I'll probably retire before we I'm going to go over one of these right now and then we'll just go on from there and I'm going to mention these kind of together because of the purpose that I used them for recently, but you don't have to, I mean, they're not technically related. A lot of these tools that we'll mention um, in the Unix philosophy, they could be chained together to um, just like vulnerabilities can, you know, we could chain together solutions. Um, You know, people that are trying to attack us can chain together their own solutions. I used air quotes, Um, but the first of which is NMAP which is a security scanning tool that um, I'm actually in the process of creating a video for that on the YouTube channel. I don't know when it's going to be out it, sometime this summer. I know that's vague, but it, it will happen. And Nmap can be used to, like I said, scan for things on the network to do OS fingerprinting, but also ARP watch I'm going to mention as well. The scenario here is if you have something on your network and you're like, what is that? what is that device? I don't remember ever seeing that device before. Why is it on the network? I need some information about it. And you know, Nmap could be used for other things too, like just finding out how many IP addresses on your network are are used in a specific subnet if you wanted to, um, I mean, hopefully you have documentation where you wouldn't need to use Nmap for this, but if you don't, then you could scan a subnet and find out what IPs are live or at least responding but going further, you could do OS fingerprinting to find out what operating systems being run on a device. Um, in my case, there was an an Android device that uh, joined the network that I'm pretty sure um, uh, I know who it was. Long story. This isn't a, a business thing. This isn't a Learn Linux TV thing. This is like a home network thing. But this is something that'll happen in the real world where you have um, a device you want to know. Okay, hey, what is this? Did I set that up and forget about it? Um, and that's what one of the things that nmap can do is help give you clues about the device that might point you to the actual use case for it. And also arpwatch, which is something I use in pfSense, and I know not everybody uses a pfSense firewall, so I'm I'm assuming there has to be equivalent tools that do the same thing. But what arpwatch allows me to do is get a notification anytime something new was added to the network, and I think that's probably even more important than N- nmap. You need to know you know, what's being used on your network, what's on your network, and if somebody plugs something in or joins a Wi-Fi SSID, and you you need to know about this because any one of those devices could be a, a problem, and getting a notification about that will certainly help. So ARPwatch, to get a notification, I guess, an NMAP, once you get a notification to scan that device to find out more information about it, obviously, you should block the device if you don't know what it is and get it off the network. But um, those are the first two tools that I wanted to mention. They're, again, not related, but they're, they kind of are because they help you do the same thing, which is find out what the heck that weird thing is on the network that just joined.
1: I actually have another two tools that I use regularly mm-hmm. related to networking as well on the Linux side of things. Uh, the first one is Netcat. It's pretty useful to send packets uh, by hand. Basically, you want to send a specific packet to a specific destination, a specific port or whatever. Netcat will help you do exactly that. Um, the other one is um, is IP tables. I'm an old-time sysadmin. I used to create firewalls by hand through IP table scripts, and so I really like the way IP tables was formatted and the way that it worked. I know there are some newfangled things that these kids today are using, but uh, yeah, I still use IP tables wherever I can. I still install it on the systems I deploy.
0: And that's a great and firewall. Yeah. And I really like
1: the way that it's structured. And in addition to IP tables, I also use XTables tables add ons, which is a, a series of modules that you can add to, to IP tables that give you new matches and give you new targets for, for packets. And the specific one that I use a lot to, when I'm trying to block ports is the, the chaos target. Um, It will respond with a different state each time that uh, a port is, is, uh, when a connection is attempted to a port that you're blocking. Rather than just dropping the packet, it can just uh, not respond, or it can send a different packet back or something like that. And it will make, for example, scanning with that map really tricky because you won't get accurate responses.
0: Yeah, I didn't actually know about that myself. Obviously, I knew about IP tables, but yeah, beyond that, and another thing about IP tables, like some people, um, especially if you're just starting out, you could probably use like UFW. Not every distribution has that, which isn't itself a firewall. It's more of like a way to manage a firewall that simplifies yeah. things. I would prefer people learn IP tables and NF tables and those things because it, I feel like it's better to be more intimately familiar with the underlying technology. But if you're just starting out and you need a quick way to, to make it happen for now, there's always, um, you know, I don't want to call it a wrapper or front end, but... Um, there's things like um, UFW. So the next two tools, I'm going to try to keep the these quick because they are not security related. Um, but I mentioned them because I feel like there's some of these issues, especially with hardware, the physical layer, if you will, that people run into, and it, it's hard for them to figure out, um, and they're not really sure what to do. It takes a really long time, and I think these tools can help save some time. Now, the first of these is iPerf 3 or just iPerf in general. Um, You could use this to find out what your bandwidth is from point A to point B. Now, obviously, you could just use SCP and you could just save an ISO file on on one server and then just SCP it over to the other side and back. I mean, technically, you don't really need iPerf for this, but iPerf is a tool in and of itself. And um, what helped me recently, um, what I've discovered, and this is really weird, is I implemented 10 gig Ethernet and I was getting barely one gig out of it. I'm like, what's going on? Um, So in that situation, you could run iPerf between endpoints to find out which endpoint is actually slowing down your connection and why you're not getting the speed. Obviously, you're never going to get the full speed. That's just a pipe dream pipe dream the internet pipe you know um pun there um i had to i had to do that pun intended but pun in, <laughs> absolutely. Well, actually at first it was not intended but i will <laughs> um, but anyway i saw that glimmer in
1: your eyes when it actually materialized <laughs> so in my
0: case i i actually had some help um from tom which is uh, a popular individual on the youtube channel um where I had, you know, like I said, 10 gig wasn't working out, and I said I was going to keep this short, and I guess I lied. Um, but anyway, what what we ended up finding out was that um, there's some sort of bug in TrueNAS that where if you have jails running, it severely limits the capability of the network stack, and then by disabling jails, it magically worked. But I perf led us to that scenario. Um, so anyway, for more practical senses here. If you have a device in between endpoints that can't handle the bandwidth, you could pretty much isolate which device it is that's slowing down things. The other one that I was going to mention that's not security related, but is one of these things that I, I see very often, is um, a, a use case for, for this very often, is MEM test 86, or an equivalent memory test for physical hardware. Because in my experience, I don't know if it's been this way for you. Um, you know me, I'm a Linux guy, right? But if if some if another platform does something better than Linux, I, I will let everybody know because it's just the way it goes. Um, in my personal experience, I found Windows to handle bad memory issues um, better than Linux. Linux, in my experience, seems to just go all kinds of haywire. It's not that Windows won't go haywire too. It just kind of seems to to have fewer problems with bad memory. You should never have bad memory. But I've seen situations, for example, somebody's running a Windows server, then they move it over to Linux and like, yes, yeah, constantly locking up. Linux sucks. Well, you might have bad hardware. And memtest86 is something that I recommend people run on physical hardware every now and then just to make sure everything is fine. There's not really a big chance that this is going to be a problem for you. but. If it is a problem for you, I find that memory, heart, physical memory problems are very hard to troubleshoot because the symptoms are almost always different. So that's why I wanted to bring this up.
1: How are you. In that category, I usually find diagnosing overheating problems or PSU problems to be a bit trickier because they don't always trigger at the same time. You might be replicating the issue and it doesn't happen, and then after a while it happens in a different situation. When it's memory, if you load up the system, you'll see something break. At least in my experience, I usually find it that way. Um, What you mentioned about Windows dealing better with memory issues, my experience has not been that. Oh. There is an, an advanced feature, if you can call it that way. You can actually tell Windows to limit the amount of memory that it uses. You might have 64 gigs on your machine, but you can limit it to using only 8, for example. And that does help you troubleshoot memory issues because it will eliminate some of the, the memory locations and memory addresses until you actually find the one that's giving you problems. Mm. And Linux also lets you do this. You can also block off blocks of memory for the system to, to ignore. And you can also do that on the Linux side as well. Um, I don't know, Windows, whenever it has bad memory, it will give spill out random BSODs or something like that. And you'll be left scratching your head because it will point out different things every single time.
0: I don't know. Yep, and I, I my personal experience hasn't
1: been that it's better than, than Linux there.
0: So yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess that's um, that's how it goes between administrators, right? Because our worldview is going to be um, you know by our experiences. So for me, yeah. it's been the case that I've I've noticed Linux locking up more often. Obviously, Windows has a blue screen of death. Um, that does happen. But I've also seen Windows machines that'll have these. I'm trying to remember what the error messages are because there are there's some predictability on Windows because there's a error message I can't remember it, but if I see it again, I'll know. Right then and there that there's a memory problem when, when i see it but i'll see you know because i deal with a lot of people um, from the youtube channel that are switching to linux like especially on their laptop or desktop and then they'll, they'll usually say you know well windows was fine linux is locking up what's going on and then a lot of the times i find that um it's memory believe it or not so anyway just test your ram i think that's probably a good thing to do um, every now and then um again very small chance that you'll probably have a bad stick of RAM, but it does happen. Yeah. So and, go ahead.
1: And if you want to look at your hardware in detail, LSHW is your friend. It can give you a random of the, the hardware on your system and even show you what drivers are being loaded for each one. Uh, look into the V flag there. You can actually repeat it lots of time for more information. It's a very powerful tool. There, is, there are equivalents for USB and PCI. So LS-PCI, LS-USB, they are your friends. Learn to use those.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have a handful of tools to talk about that are all for the same purpose. I'm mentioning these for the same purpose because in the previous episode, we talked about the uncomfortable truth that even if you... Do a really great job with security and you get it you know you're paying attention to the, to the rss fees you know what's going on you patch things when they need to be patched you're installing the updated firmware you're doing everything that we've talked about the uncomfortable truth though is that you might still become a victim because there are some things out there especially with the um you know the situation we talked about um in the previous episode that you know, people can still get in because it's really hard to detect some of these things. And if somebody does get in, despite all of your um, efforts to keep secure, what do you do? Um, And the short answer is have a good um, and tested disaster recovery plan. Um, Obviously, we hope you'll never have to use it. But if you do have to use that, you know, take that plan out and actually execute it, that it needs to be tested and, and working. But as part of that, Getting back up and running as quickly as you possibly can is important. It's also important, as we talked about, to understand, especially when you have to research how far someone got into your systems, you may not be able to get up and running quickly despite, you know, your management team telling you that you need to have it done by the end of the day, um, which isn't going to happen. But that aside, we have several tools or or I've listed several tools. I'm sure you might have a few as well that are going to help you um, just take the edge off of this process, yep. and, and just
1: just in a note there, what you said about it taking some time if you want to get to the bottom of it, we've actually had examples of that, and we discussed them on the podcast. Yep. Uh, remember that team that we talked about around Christmas that they were going to take three weeks to get their systems back up
0: online? Yeah, and that's actually what I'm thinking about. Yeah, yeah, and.
1: It's amazing. You hear a, an experienced IT team that say that they're going to take three weeks to get systems back together. Yeah, it was a massive breach. They wanted to regain trust in their systems, and that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And the tools that we're going to mention here are pretty good help in that situation.
0: Yeah, I think that's a vi- And sometimes you're just a victim of assumptions. People assume that you're so smart that you'll have it done in, in a few minutes yeah. because that's how smart you are. Um, it's not that we're smart or not. It's just we have reality. Um, so, one of these is going to be either an internal or a private Git server. Okay. So, Git T is something that I've gone over um, recently in a video, but it doesn't have to be that. There's GitLab, GitHub. I mean, they have private repositories. So, one thing to keep in mind is just because you're putting something in Git, it doesn't mean that it's public. It can be, and it is if you don't tell it otherwise. But you generally won't want some repositories to be public. Also, you even if it's private, you still don't want to add your passwords in there and clear text or your API keys. You should never do that. I don't care how private you make things, right? Um, never do that. But um, having a Git server for config, and I'm not talking about just being a software engineer, because if you're a software engineer, I mean, you, know, pro- you probably know Git backwards and forwards. But what I don't think a lot of people understand is that Git is very useful for system administrators as well because we can keep our Nagios configs in there, our Terraform, Packer, Ansible, Chef, Puppet, um, whatever it is, blueprints, diagrams, um, it, there in Git. So that way, well, maybe not so much diagrams because we don't want to give someone a lot of information if, in case they break into it. But anyway, my point is, especially for configuration, you can store that in the Git server such that if you, you know, need to reload a server, you can pull that config and and put it back in place. But another thing it allows you to do as well is uh, you know if a server stops working and you're wanting to know why, you could just go into the config directory. You could do a git status. It'll it'll show you like what files are recently modified, and you can look at those files, find out who modified them or, or how they got modified. You could revert them back to a, a known working um, condition there. So that's just the beginning though. Get then this there's a reason why I mentioned this first among the tools. In this group is because the remaining tools are going to really be benefited by having a single place, private and secure place to store your config files.
1: Just add something here there now that we're talking about Git, and it's somewhat related. It's not the same idea of getting the configuration on a central system, but mm-hmm. it's a way for you to store the changes that are made in a system. So that if you make a change that breaks something, you can revert back to what existed. Um at TC keeper, Etsy keeper. Um, it's a really good program. It integrates with your package managers, and it works by creating a Git repository inside of your etc folder, so that any change that gets added to that uh, to that folder will be added as a commit to Git, so that you can revert to previous versions if you need it. And it will do that automatically. You don't have to do anything. You install ATC Keeper, you keep using your regular package manager, and it will take care of that. If you ever need to roll back a change that happens, you just Git send get back the committed from a day ago or from before that last change and get stuff back running again. It has saved my bacon a couple of
0: times. And Um, it might have inspired a video on the channel. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, I I think I might have heard of this, but maybe in passing. So it does sound very interesting, actually. See, I'm learning too.
1: Of course. There are so many tools out there. It's impossible to know them all. Right. Um you did mention gt i'm a very avid user of gt i have my own personal
0: um,
1: installation i have it running in docker in one of my systems at home
0: mm-hmm.
1: i do mirror over 300 repositories from github just in case github dies of course because that's something that happens um, but one of the ways that you can use it in the enterprise is by having it running in your in your infrastructure, just as a backup of the stuff that you have in GitHub, for example, of your projects that you're developing. And you can keep that synchronizing immediately, like every now and then it will pull the latest version from the repository so that you always have the code available. And not just the code, it will actually Replicate the list of commits, like if it was the main repository, and you can use it as a backup for your for your development. This is especially true and useful if you're a development company and you have lots of people working on Git. So you just deploy Git on the different system and you point it to your usual repositories, and it will take care of keeping everything in sync.
0: It's a very That's good tool. A very good idea, actually. Um, my so problem. One of the
1: things mm-hmm. that Gitee does not support is GIST files, just one single file repository. And those tend to be very useful for starting configurations. Um, using a single file as a repository is something that you can do in GitHub through GIST, GISTs. Um, and Git has that as a feature request, and it hasn't been implemented yet, and it's something that I really would love to see in the product.
0: Wow, yeah, I hope, hope somebody... Um... Does that? If anyone listening is a developer and wants to help out, um, you know, maybe see if they if you could do that. Um, yeah. So that's a very good point. I, yeah, have something offline or not? You know, something to sync it to. My process is is way more complicated. I should probably look at that because I'm literally just um, having a like a bash script run by cron, doing a, a tar of like all of my repositories and then using a utility to uh, transfer them to an off-site backup thing, and it, it does it you know, re- regularly, but I think this is probably a way better solution than that. So um, not, not to knock my solution, it does work, but I think if I was going <laughs> to do it again, I probably wouldn't do it that way, honestly. Um, so the next in the chain here is um, coming from a previous episode where we talked about a golden image, basically a starting image that is going to have some defaults in it that are, you know, safer defaults. For example, SSH configs. You know, there's there could be some things in there that you want to disable. Um, there's there's all kinds of things that you could put in an image that you could use as a deployment image that I won't get into because we have an whole episode about that. Um, but one of the tools that I like is Packer for this purpose. Now, um, several of the tools are are actually made by the same company. Packer, its job is to create an image. Okay, so the alternative way you could do this, and I've seen the, seen it done this way, and I don't like it done this way personally, is when someone just has a VM that exists as the VM that they just constantly take images of to serve as an updated deployment image. Problem is if that if something got into that server, then what got in there would be in every image. Then that's a problem. Now, if you leave something running, obviously th- this could be a problem. But what I like about Packer is, by code, you can define what the image is like, and what it and it supports. You know the usual suspects like your hypervisor solutions and and all these. So you could create a template or an image, depending on what your platform decides to call it, because the lingo is different with the defaults. And you can programmatically, like infrastructure as code style, define the image. And you could put your defaults in there. And at that point, you won't really care about deleting your image and then creating a new one because you just run the scripts um, for Packer. And this is why it kind of piggybacks off of Git, because if you were to lose your Packer configs, especially if you've, you know, spent some time developing these over years, that's gonna suck because you have to recreate them again. And that's a lot of work. And if you have something in a inversion control like Git or a Git server, then you can pull that config back down and you can, of course, get, get your images recreated pretty easily because that's what Packer allows you to do. So that's the first step in a, a series of additional selections I'm going to give you guys.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, infrastructure as code, well, it's that's the foundation block for DevOps. And <laughs> that's the way that the IT admins should be doing stuff today. And-
0: yep. It goes back
1: to the to the pets and the cattle systems. Right. Today you shouldn't be having too many pet systems. They should be more like cattle so that you can deploy them anywhere and as many instances as you need. And the basis to do that properly is having scripts to create stuff. And Packer is part of that. Looking at infrastructure as code is part of that.
0: And you know, I love installing Linux. I do it all the time, especially when I make videos and things. But if I'm in a pinch, I don't want to manually set up an operating system of any kind. Right. So that's, that's especially important with infrastructure as code because it's saving you from doing that. It's either like you spend several hours, just tweaking your CentOS or Red Hat, whatever you're using, you want, you, you know, and you could do that. It takes hours or you could just, you know, run a script and just go grab coffee and come back and your image is ready, which is always better. Yeah. Uh, also saves you from human error because what if, you know, you've even though you've done this 100 times manually creating servers, hopefully, you don't. But if you do, you can totally forget one of those steps that's even in one of the policies at your company that you're required to follow. We're human, right? So you might, it might, you might be tired, maybe you forget that one thing, and that, that one thing could lead to a bigger thing. But if you script it, then, you know, maybe you're better protected from that situation. You're protected from yourself, I guess you could say. Yeah.
1: And it's reproducible, which is also a <laughs> yep. plus.
0: So, All right, so you have an image, that's awesome. You could use that image to deploy a server and that's really cool. But you really should automate the deployment of a server as well. And the next one in the chain is Terraform. And Terraform, if you haven't, I think a lot of people in the audience has probably heard of Terraform. Packer is probably 50-50. Even people that use Terraform, even though they're made by the same company, might not be aware of Packer. But I think a lot of people are aware of Terraform. But just in case you're not, It allows you to create a server or or servers, plural, depending if if you have more than one. And what Terraform can do is it, well, you need an image, right? Because you're just going to say, you know spin up a CentOS server, but you need to give it an image. But the image that you give it could be the very same that you created with Packer. So Packer creates the image, now the image exists, and then it's Terraform's job to make infrastructure exist, and it's going to use an image that you've created to do that so then terraform um it just fits in so well i mean he asked me about the same company but it's such a great process you have you know your images created then you have a thing that makes that take that image and actually creates actual instances with that image
1: yeah it's, that's it's part of the project it's part, no, part of the process part of the workflow it yep. really changes the way that you look at systems and systems deployment and we're going to look into more system deployment tools and system configuration tools as well next. Um, This all follows (laughs) like a straight pass. You start with the image, you deploy the image, next you're going to configure the image to your standards and to your liking and get it to a state that you want it to be.
0: Yep, and one thing This is a personal opinion. I think a lot of people will agree with me, but some people will not. And that's okay because, you know, we all have our our way of doing things, right? So um, I love Terraform for making things exist. I don't like it as much for taking things that already exist and updating them. And Terraform can absolutely do that, right? So if you wanted to, um, I don't know, change a subnet or change a name, and there's all kinds of things that you could do. You could update your infrastructure as well. It saves the state and you can make changes. The problem though is some of those changes might require the entire server to be recreated. Now, hopefully you're in a, a, a stance where that doesn't bother you because you, you know your system is so great that you have like a, a load balancer, you have auto healing and auto scaling, all these things. But you know, most of us don't have those things yet. Um, we're still working on those in some of some companies. Um, if you make a wrong move, though, you could delete a server, and there are ways around this. There are ways of synchronizing the state with Terraform. There's no shortage of articles out there that'll uh, tell you how to do that. I prefer just to not use Terraform for managing things at all, uh, unless I want to you know delete something. Um I, I like to only use it for creating things and then using something like Ansible. Chef, Puppet, SaltStack, there's a number of these configuration and and management utilities and automation tools that do a really good job of taking a server that already exists and then making it into something else or maintaining it. So, for example, with Ansible, which I know very well because I use it every day, um, you could have a role. You could have a role that's web server. You could have a role that's database server. And by assigning a server to a role, it becomes the thing that you've defined assuming you have no syntax errors of course and if you want to make a change for example there's this package you want to make sure is on every server you can use ansible for that i wouldn't use terraform for that i would use ansible or one of the tools that's in the same category for maintaining and modifying existing instances so in this chain you have your configuration files and your scripts in git you have packer to create your images you have terraform To take your images and create actual instances with those images. And then you have your configuration management utility to uh, maintain those and keep the configs sane. And also, what they do is they revert config files. If something isn't at spec or isn't as defined, one of these tools will just delete that config file or just replace it with the one that it's supposed to have. So there also is a, I don't want to call it a protection layer because it's kind of hit or miss, but there is a little bit of that because it will. Absolutely, replace something if it's not at the correct state. So, those things combined, I think, will give you a not an entire disaster recovery plan, but a lot of a, a big part of it, actually.
1: It will help with a very big part of it. Oh yeah, and you can think of uh, Ansible Chef Puppet uh, whatever as a desired state tool. You tell it how you want the the server to be at, and then they'll take care of getting it to, into that state. For example, you mentioned defining it as a web server. Okay, they'll get the packages in there to to make it a web server. And they'll get the the basic configuration in there to make it a web server running with the configuration that you want it to be running at. And you can replicate that over dozens or hundreds of them. There is no limit there. So this scales very well. This goes into large deployments very well. And it's very widely used specifically in those scenarios where it's no longer feasible to do it manually. And so yeah, those are the tools of choice
0: currently. Now, w- one of my pet peeves, which I, I have a lot, I like to complain, which I've, I've been realizing very recently. Um, but one of my pet peeves is that you know, uh, beyond the fact that we have these security solutions that that claim in the marketing to make your servers hack proof, which is silly, um, you know that. One of the things that I've run into personally and I, I, a lot actually is I, I'll look for one of these solutions because there might be something that I want to do or want to automate or I want some kind of in, you know security scanning to happen. And I look at the product, I demo it, I think it's pretty cool. And then, um, um, yeah, how do I go forward with this? I talk to sales and the next thing you know, I have a statement of work for $60,000 to implement it and it's going to require about 20 servers to be spun up and... Um, I'm looking at it like, what? Um, That's just really complicating things and also saturating the budget. No, thank you. Um, But this is extremely common when it comes to security. Um, That's A a lot of people make money this way. And and I'm not trying to throw shade on um, all security companies out there because I'm sure there's a lot of them that do really great work and have really great products. I've just run into some that are not as great that I, I won't throw them under the bus here. But it's really refreshing when you can just download something for free that may not have all the features that those really expensive tools have, but you can still benefit from them. And the tool that I'm going to mention is Sysify Linus. Linus is the name of the tool, L-Y-N-I-S. It's by Sysify, C-I-S-O-F-Y. And you can download this in your distributions repositories, although I don't recommend that because you'll probably get an older version that's not going to know about, you know, newer problems. They have a repository that you can add. And what it'll allow you to do is scan your server for things that you might want to pay attention to and adjust. One thing though, is that um, I I use this a lot, this tool. Um, I actually have it automated now, but there's a ton of things it's gonna come back with. It's not uncommon to see like 40, 50, hundred different things it's gonna recommend that you change. Um, and it's not that you have to do everything it says, but each thing that it comes up with, there's a reason, there's maybe a policy or um, a certification element like SOC 2 related or whatnot that inspired them to mention this. But you look through the list and see what's relevant. So for example, they might complain if you don't have a message in SSH when you log into a server, you, it's supposed to show a message that says, you know, only connect to the server if you're authorized. The fate of the world depends on you not connecting to the <laughs> server. And if you do connect to this server, um, you will create bad karma. Okay, it doesn't say that, but it's it, it does say, you know, only authorized. Worthy my and, and of <laughs> course, you know if you are an outside attacker you see this message all the time and you bypass it you don't care. Uh, it's not going to stop anybody but it does satisfy legal requirements, policy requirements um maybe in I don't know depending on where you are geographically there's something that would be said about, you know, if it goes to court that, you know, you have a clear policy that's shown in in you know, communicated when someone tries to connect. It'll mention that even though it's not going to really impact security all that much, but they will mention like vulnerabilities and um, really bad things as well. So I recommend checking that out. It is free. They do have like an enterprise version that I pay for. It's not 20 or $60,000 of the statement of work. It was, I forgot what it was. It's just basically they they give you a dashboard if you just want a place to put all of your results in one area. But honestly, for the longest time, I was just running it in cron and exporting it in a text file. So, I mean, you could totally bypass that altogether. Um mean, I'm sure there's other tools like this. Um, I was just really excited with Linus when I found out about it because I found out about it right after I was engaging with a company for the company I was working for at the time to implement a security tool that did a lot of the same things. And the price tag was not something management was going to approve at all. Which does happen, but I, I think management, depending on the mindset, you know, there is a mindset of "free is bad" that some companies have. But assuming yours don't have, it doesn't have that mindset, just download it and run it. it. If nothing else, it gives you something that you can use tangibly to kind of get an idea of where your se- security might be. It's not going to get to tell you about everything, especially what we mentioned about mentioned last podcast, but. Um, It is something to benefit from, and I I think it's something to try out. Just Again, I wouldn't recommend using the one in the distributions repositories because it's probably going to be out of date. Just look at their community repository and get a newer version installed. That would be a good idea.
1: Um, There is one in that vein where it doesn't scan for vulnerabilities, but it does scan for state changes, for stuff that changed in your system, um, called tripwire. Uh, I've used Mm. it before. um, few years back, I don't know what state it is currently, but I've used it for that. It will alert you for files that get updated, which is very useful when your machine is getting your kitted or something like that. So it will tell you what files changed and it provides some interesting reports. If your system does change often, then you, it will become meaningless because the reports will just give you some random noise. Um, right. But it is a tool that's interesting for systems that are not supposed to be changing and you will get an alert if something changes.
0: Yeah. So what what um, I'm hearing is not to put it on your WordPress server because you'll be notified every hour. For right
1: example. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you did cast some shade on companies that are selling uh, security stuff before, and I cannot let that pass. Obviously, I do work for TaxCare. We are not one of those companies that you mentioned. Obviously, so again, I could not let that pass. Um, oh no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> want you
0: to. And, and you know, TaxCare <laughs> offers multiple different things, and and they. I feel like TuxCare is in a different world because they I've never seen a claim anywhere that it makes anything bulletproof. It's like pretty matter of fact. This solution does X. This solution does Y. And yeah. they don't say X is bulletproof. There's, you know, your basic, your, your live patching. It does live patching. It that's what right. it does. And that's it. It's simple. And I love that about it. But the companies I'm talking about, they're the ones that have like one product. Their name is the same, Uh, you know, you you guys have the same name at one point it's your main product, but um, I I just really want to put these other ones in a category. I'm having a hard time doing that because they're not the same, but it's kind of hard to really give you guys something to watch out for without, you know, angering a company out there and having them uh, come after us. (laughs) But just what be careful. You right? just, just what be you careful. mentioned there
1: about uh, one single product requiring like 20 different servers—that is something that happens a lot. It happens a lot, especially in systems like Siam systems, where where they're looking for intrusions and collecting logs from all your servers and all of that. They'll ask for server for a server just for doing the, the log collection, and then another one just for doing the analysis, and another for doing the reporting, and so on and so on. When you look at the The total bill there, you're buying like 20 new servers,
0: like you just mentioned, just to support that solution. Not into consideration, actually, that's probably it. That's probably the disqualifier because I'm not aware of anything at TuxCare other than running like one ePortal server, which is optional that you would ever have to run. Um, if you you have to run a bunch of servers, but you know, there's look at other solutions before you go along with it. Maybe that's as simple as we can get it,
1: yeah, probably. But again, I don't want to cast any shade on anybody. Yeah. Um, we have the, the episode running a bit long. This is a very interesting topic. And there are a couple of tools that I would like to mention. Mm-hmm. Um, not for, for actual server deployments, but to, to dealing with the aftermath of a, of a breach. There you actually found a system that has been attacked and you managed to isolate whatever was causing the attack. And you managed to find the, the program that caused this. One good software that you can use to take a look at the code and see how it works and all of that, of course, assuming that you have the knowledge to actually look at source code, um, is IDA Pro. It's a disassembler. It actually lets you look at the code in assembly format, but it will provide you with some comments and code decorations and all of that to help you understand the code and the code flow through the through the program. It, if you have the know-how on how to do this, or if you have somebody on your team that knows how to do this say so your star program or something like that. Um, looking at the code of one of these tools will help you understand, for example, how they got into the network. Um, it might give you some interesting information into how they access the network and what you should be closing at the firewall level or what vulnerability they abused or something like that. So looking at the source code, if you have the know-how and how to do that, it can really help on this type of events and yep. at the more basic level also for dealing with the aftermath of something like this uh, tools like s and f that let you trace the program execution flow as it's running mm-hmm. are also very useful for this um again it depends on the level of um, of knowledge that you have on the technical skills of your team and all of that this is not something that the basics admin will ever have to know by himself um, but it does help to have somebody on the team with some knowledge around these tools and how to use them and all of that um, because in these situations it can be very
0: handy. Yep. Now, yeah, you're right. The episode is getting a little long, so I'm gonna I, I definitely want to mention this though because this is something that I was um, kind of building up for. and that is automatic updates, which could be live patching or just unattended upgrades. There's a difference here. Um, at the lowest level and for free, you can um, run something like DNF automatic on your you know Red Hat family systems. And then there's also the unattended upgrades on um, Debian and Ubuntu. Ubuntu has uh, three machines for free with their, their advantage program that you can get live patching for. Now, the difference with unattended upgrades is, you know, it's, it's just like it sounds. It's just going to install the updated packages for you, which you have to also understand, depending on your distribution, that might restart services when you do this. So um, you may or may not want to do this during production hours. It's, it, it, you know, I would say unattended upgrades or the equivalent, whatever your distro names it, is like the lowest level, the, the least you could do. Um, and you can configure it not to restart services. You just have to know that it can do that. Live patching. Um, if you, if you had, don't
1: restart services, it's important to note that the one right. that you're running is still not updated. So you're still running the vulnerable code until you do restart it.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up. That That is absolutely correct. So, um, and that's another reason to just say this is a very minimum thing that you can do, you, the least you could do. Live patching is one of these things that's like science fiction to me at first, when I first heard of it and then until I actually saw it happen um, and believed it because I had to see this. Because, um, you know, longtime Linux administrators, you know, you, you restart a server when the kernel gets updated because that's the brain, right? Um, live patching came in later on. Um, it's actually still kind of new, even though it's been out for a lot of years, it's, it's, you know, still kind of making its rounds is the idea of actually putting a patch into the kernel that's running. So that way you don't have to actually reboot it. And depending on the solution, it might actually go beyond that. Um, now I'm going to talk not as an employee of Tuxcare because I'm not one, I actually don't work for Tuxcare. Um, and even though you do, I'm going to take this on my, or at least part of this on myself because um, I run uh, kernel care on the servers that I manage. Um, And I chose to do this because for me personally, it was the best fit. And the reason for that is because the other solutions for live patching are also great. Like Ubuntu's is great. You know, the other distributions, they have their own. Um, But the problem I run into there is it's very common that someone is, um, a mixed shop when it comes to a Linux distribution. Even even somebody who's all in on Debian, for example, might have that one SUSE server or, or some other distribution running here and there. And that could hypothetically mean, at least in my case, because I also run different distributions, I could be paying multiple companies for the live patching thing. And that's just not something that I wanted to do. And I like TuxCare because, well, many reasons, but one of the main reasons for me is it supports a ridiculous number of distributions out there and all the all the enterprise ones, like pretty much everything you can think of, your Debians and Ubuntu's. So I have everything under one umbrella and it does the live patching. And depending on if you have, um, you know, kernel care plus, you could also do the shared libraries. And, and that's also a, a game changer because um, at least as far as I remember, I don't think Ubuntu's or Red Hat solution will do that. Um, you could probably correct me if I'm wrong on that.
1: No, they don't. Uh, They are only for their own specific distribution. They do not support others.
0: Right. So I use it, and that's the reason I use it. Um, You know, disclaimer, TuxCare has been and is a sponsor of the YouTube channel, but I agreed to have them on because I legitimately use their service, and that's why I do it. I wanted to mention it not as a plug for your employer, but just as an aside, it's definitely something that I recommend that you look at and compare against other solutions? Because I, I think you'll probably come to the same conclusion that I came to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When I first joined the company, I came with the background of working as a sysadmin for many years and doing things the old way, which was, like you said, updating that, that a system and then rebooting a system to make sure that the new code got picked up and everything worked fine with the new code. Um, and yeah, the first time I was introduced to live patching, it was an eye opener. Things could be done differently and much better, and with no disruption at all. And again, I wish I had that before. I really did. Yeah.
0: That, that's, but, that's also how I felt about it too. I, I just never would have thought we'd still be rebooting our servers and even our laptops or desktops. You know, nowadays, and, and, and it's just like crazy to me. I thought we would have, and we do have a better solution. It's just that it you know, it takes a while for some of these things to catch on and 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 uh thankfully it seems like that's happening now, which is great. But I just kind of found myself like, why am I saving all my work on my computer and this rebooting it and still? Like this isn't nineteen ninety-five. Come on.
1: <laughs> yeah. In IT we're very quick to pick up new technology, but changing habits, why does this, this take too long?
0: that's that, that's a lot. Um, the last thing I'm gonna mention on my side is just another plug for either YubiKey or something like it. We, we have a whole episode about Two. fa I'm not gonna even approach the topic because um, that's even a, that's a recent episode. It was just a couple of episodes ago. Um, <clears throat> but another thing that I've learned recently, is, and this is just a personal opinion, but I think a lot of people will agree. Um, Because there's so many of these different keys and competitors to YubiKey, I don't really care what you use as long as you have some kind of 2FA solution. Um, But I recommend looking at the FIDO Alliance site, and they have a listing of the keys that are in compliance and are audited and part of that program. So before you consider a key of some kind, it might just be a good idea to go to the FIDO Alliance website even if that's not something that you're using, depending on which of the 2FA technologies you're using, I think it's probably a better judge of character than just something you see randomly on Amazon that just claims to be secure, but nobody's ever heard of before. <laughs> so, you know, definitely look at that. And the
1: the maker will probably not no longer exist one week from the day that you buy it. So. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, the device might not, not even work a week after you buy it. Yeah. It just <laughs> might not be registered by the bus. For yeah, it might not even work, but uh, I think 2FA, at least for me, is more trustworthy when I know it's coming from something that's been audited and checked rather than just somebody making a claim. Because just like everything else, you have a, a solution like 2FA, it's great, but if implemented poorly or designed poorly, it could basically be the same as if you just you know don't have it at all. So um, keep that in mind as you implement 2FA, check out our previous episode on that to learn more about that. Um, I didn't mention the Fido Alliance site on that episode, which is why I wanted to give it a plug in this episode.
1: Yeah, sure. And again, we're running a bit long on this yep. one. Apologies for that, everybody. Uh, we promise to keep this <laughs> in control for the next ones, but the the topic was just too broad, and we could continue like for the rest of the, the next hour and the one after that. But,
0: uh, yeah, and let us know what your preference is. I mean, we'll, we could try harder if the preference is shorter episodes. My theory is that people are more forgiving about security podcasts than they are others. But I'll let the, the comments from the people um, judge that. Yeah.
1: And also, the how technical do you want us to get into this stuff? Mm-hmm. Because we could look into topics like this one at a more technical level, which is a bit harder to get across on the podcast, or we can just keep it high level like we've been doing it so far. Um, where we don't actually provide code or samples or anything like that, but we do give you an overview of what's out there so that you have a more informed decision when it comes time to do so.
0: Yeah, I agree. I'd like to know that as well. So definitely write in and let us know and uh, we'll look at that. And, um, you know, it's, I think at this stage in our podcast, it's a great idea just to kind of, you know, re engage with the audience and see how we're doing and what we can change, what we can do. Um, we're 30 episodes in now, so we're not, we're not, this isn't a new podcast, this is, this is a um, veteran at this point, almost.
1: Or even if you're interested in us doing it live one day.
0: Yep, and that's something I definitely want us to get into um, at some point as well. Yep, that'll be great. So can
1: can promise there won't be a cat in the background at that point, but yeah, it can. Or be a
0: lawnmower alive, so. or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know how it goes. I mean, working from home, I think yeah. people are way more understanding than they used to be, so. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So that is the episode then. And there's a lot more, there's there's more tools. Like like you said, we can go over more. And maybe we will do a follow-up at some point in the future.
1: Yeah. And again, these are tools that are supposed to save you time to help you do stuff, to get things done faster and more reliably. There are tons of other tools out there Every other day you get new tools that you can use. These are the ones that we know are reliable, that we've either used ourselves or that we have pretty good information about and we do know that they're effective. So yeah, that's why we mentioned them.
0: And I'm going to underscore the fact that you should absolutely let your management team know before you run any of these things, just to make sure that you keep them in the loop, which is always important. So again, keep that in mind and with that said, I'll uh, go ahead and end the episode right here because, like you said, we went over. We're passionate. What can we say? But um, this is our episode on tools. And who knows? Maybe there's going to be another one. So I appreciate you guys watching, listening, digesting. And uh, we'll see you again very soon.
1: Thanks, everybody. Do not run the Ansible scripts on production. Do run them in the lab first. And until the next episode. See ya. Bye.